what does it mean to bring our whole selves into the world? To give ourselves the gift of unconditional acceptance? Join me as we learn together. I'm Jorgen Salvis, and this is Unshaming. Hey, it's Jor. This episode is a little different from the other Unshaming episodes. I'm not actually interviewing someone who has been directly impacted by shame. I'm interviewing a fellow journalist who covers LGBTQ human rights abuses and how those abuses are directly linked to shame. Tanya Lakshina is the Associate Director for the Human Rights Watch's Europe and Central Asia Division and is based in Moscow. She is one of the most important human rights journalists covering LGBTQ life in Russia and the former Soviet territories. She's been with Human Rights Watch for 13 years now. Chechnya, the region we'll be focusing on in today's episode, is a former Soviet territory and has been in her portfolio since she started. Now, a little background on Chechnya before we begin. Chechnya is a conservative Muslim region of Russia that sort of operates as its own republic. It doesn't follow Russian laws, but it does receive funding and support from Russia and is part of the Russian Federation. A couple of years ago, I read this article in The New Yorker that exposed these horrifying human rights violations against LGBTQ people in Chechnya. I'll link that article in the show notes. The article exposed how queer people in Chechnya, if they are found out to be queer, are abducted, imprisoned, and tortured by Chechen police until they release the names of other queer people that they know. And in many cases, they're either murdered by the police or by their own families who are encouraged to kill them for honor. Activists in the region have called this the anti-gay purges. When I read that article for the first time, I remember thinking back to when I came out. And I remember thinking when I came out, I was definitely scared to tell people. I was definitely ashamed, but I did not fear for my safety. I did not fear for my life in the way that queer Chechens do. And the content of that article has stayed with me for years. It essentially points to one man who is at the helm of the anti-gay purges in Chechnya, the governor of Chechnya, Ramzan Kadyrov. When confronted about the anti-gay purges, he has denied not only the existence of any persecution against queer people, but he has also denied the existence of queer people in Chechnya at all, saying, quote, we don't have such people here. If there are any, take them far away from us. In this episode, we will learn about how LGBTQ people are escaping the life-threatening risk of being queer in Chechnya. We will learn about the incredible human rights organizations that aid them, how they get to safety, and what safety even means for them. As we finish off Pride Month, I wanted to do this episode because Unshaming is about highlighting the silenced voices of society. And while we reflect and celebrate on our own LGBTQ journeys as Americans, it is so critical to be aware of the life-threatening persecution that other community members face for having the same identity. 
their stories of perseverance are just as important. This is the shame of LGBTQ plus persecution in Russia and Chechnya. Tanya, can we start off by understanding what is the situation in Chechnya right now as it pertains to LGBTQ people? What's going on there? Chechnya is like an enclave within Russia, which Mr. Kadyrov runs like his own fiefdom. And Russian international human rights obligations do not apply. Chechnya is a rather conservative Muslim society, and homophobia in Chechnya is rampant. And so if you think about the situation of uh, LGBTQ people in Chechnya, it's devastating. First of all, they are one of the undesirable groups, one of the groups which Mr. Kodirov believes does not belong in Chechnya, and they're being effectively eradicated. Therefore, for an LGBT person, coming out is not an option. It would be suicidal. And those LGBT people who live in Chechnya, they hide their sexual orientation. They hide whatever relations they may have which do not fit with the traditional paradigm. But it is further exacerbated by the fact that Mr. Kodirov and his team encourage honor killings. They make it very clear that LGBT people should be eradicated, that Chechnya should be, quote-unquote, cleansed of LGBT people altogether, because they are, according to them, a stain on the entire Chechen nation, a stain that should not be tolerated. And therefore, when the large-scale anti-gay purge began in 2017, uh, those individuals who were captured, having spent weeks and months in secret prisons, they were then handed over to their relatives, and the relatives were encouraged by the authorities to kill them. Tanya, can you tell us a little bit about what is it like being queer in Chechnya right now? What is life like for queer people there? Queer people in Chechnya can never come out. They have to live in that closet. And they have to look over their shoulder time and time again to make sure that no one is watching, to make sure that no one is reading their messages, to make sure that no one sees them go online and research queer sites. Because if they get caught, their very life is going to be at risk. When I was researching the anti-gay purge back in 2017, I interviewed quite a few survivors. Uh, the survivors who fled Chechnya, some of them in Moscow, some of them in yet another Russian city, most of those men, they were married. They were married with children. Uh, some of them fled by themselves, others fled 
with their families, with their spouses and kids. Some of them flood with pregnant spouses, and these spouses, in all those cases, had no idea about their husband's sexual orientation. They did not know what was going on. All they knew is that somehow the husband got in trouble, the authorities were after them, so the entire family had to flee. And uh, the people that I interviewed, without exception, uh, all of them told me about living in fear, living in fear of being discovered, checking your messages, looking over your shoulder, making sure that no one is watching, looking over your shoulder again when you are online, exploring queer sites or chatting to your queer friends. That's how queer people meet each other, is online only, basically. Yes, uh, that's what happens. People meet online and then uh, they arrange for in-person meetings. But after the events of 2017, after that massive, vicious anti-gay purge, people are too fearful. They're afraid to go online. They're afraid of meeting other people online because they realize that nothing prevents a local security officer from going online, joining one of the groups, and then impersonating a queer person looking to meet someone else. Based on your reporting, Tanya, what are the consequences of being outed or being discovered as gay in Chechnya? What happens at that point? Just like with uh, members of other undesirable groups. People get rounded up. Someone is detained. That person is taken to what amounts to a secret prison and tortured. Tortured for days on end. Threatened with rape. And uh, the survivors of the purge told horrific stories about being kept in uh, atrocious, airless cells, without food, practically without water, being tortured every day, being humiliated every day, and having to watch other people like themselves tortured and humiliated. Most of them are basement-type facilities where people sleep on concrete floor where they're not given anything to eat, where they barely get any water. They're forced to do all sorts of manual jobs, and they are beaten and abused day and night. They're kicked, they're punched, they're prodded with sharp metal objects. They're also tortured with electric shocks, where wires are wrapped, attached to their fingers or to their toes, or to their earlobes, or all of it together, and live current goes through them. And at some point, they faint from pain, and then their torturers revive them by pouring water over them, and then the torture resumes. While they're torturing the individual, they're asking questions. And the questions are fairly straightforward, because if they're which when a critic of the government, right, they would be asking questions about other critics that he or she possibly knows. But if they're torturing a gay person, 
then they would be asking questions about other gay people that the individual is familiar with, what their names are, what their contact details are, where they live, which people they're involved is, and so on and so forth. Also, what they do is that they take people's phones away and they go through all the contacts and under torture, of course, people yield their passwords and all relevant information. So that's how they find out about other allegedly gay or bisexual people and then they grab the other people that they were able to find out about and then they torture those other people. So the numbers just keep growing and growing and growing. That's basically what happens. And they're also outed to their families and the families are distinctly encouraged to kill them. They are in fact instructed to cleanse the family owner. So essentially this is a state-sanctioned extermination of LGBTQ people. Yes, indeed. I wonder if we can zoom out, Tanya, and understand the broader context of how we got here to this moment. Chechnya officially is just one of the many regions of the Russian Federation. In the case of anti-gay purges, very high-level Russian officials kept saying, we'd love to investigate, we would totally investigate And if it really happened, we would bring perpetrators to justice. However, there is nothing for us to investigate because no one is complaining. And that's another important thing to take into account. The stigma of being gay, the stigma of being queer in Chechnya is so overwhelming that not a single person can actually come forth and say, They tortured me over my sexual orientation. I'm gay, and that's the reason they detained me. That's the reason they tortured me. That's the reason they punished me. Family honor is very important in Chechnya and to Chechens. It is a culture of shame, in a sense, because any action of yours, anything that you do, Anything that you say does not only reflect on you, but it reflects on your entire family. And by doing something unconventional, you can actually ruin your family's reputation. And that's what people are afraid of. That's why people are silent. Say you're already in a safe place and you're fine and they cannot get you. And you expose your sexual orientation willingly. But what happens next is that pressure is going to be put on your family. And now you have a younger sister who is yet unmarried. So how is she going to get married if everyone knows that one of her brothers is gay? There's also the context of it being a very conservative Muslim region. Yes, indeed. That is true. And not only a conservative Muslim region, but also a Muslim region where local authorities very violently instill what they deem to be traditional values and very violently cleanse the society from all forms of dissent, from all those who do not conform. We'll be right back. Unshaming is proudly supported by Headspace, 
Headspace is the incredible meditation app that has completely changed my life. I actually downloaded Headspace last year at the beginning of quarantine because for the life of me, I could not fall asleep. And I think so many of us were having issues with sleep around that time, like at the beginning of quarantine, during quarantine. And for me, it was affecting everything. So I downloaded Headspace and it seriously helped clean up my sleep habits and finally get me back on track. But now I don't just use it for sleep. I use it when I need me time, time in my life that is clean and still. I'm so proud to be supported by Headspace because I truly believe in this product. We all deserve to feel happier. You deserve to feel happier. And Headspace is meditation made simple. Go to headspace.com slash unshaming. That's headspace.com slash unshaming for a free one month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation. This is the best deal offered right now. So head to headspace.com slash unshaming. So when we talk about the relationship with Russia, how does Russia benefit from protecting Chechnya? Why isn't it stepping in more? Why isn't it advocating more for human rights? What is holding Russia back from holding Chechnya and its governor accountable? Russia is a country where discrimination of LGBTQ people is written into law. But also the deal, the unspoken deal between Mr. Kadyrov in the Kremlin is clearly that in Chechnya, Mr. Kadyrov can do whatever he wants with impunity as long as that there is no war. Kadyrov was able to suppress insurgency and Chechnya is his prize. And that's insurgency against Vladimir Putin. That's insurgency against Russian authorities. Yes, indeed. In return for suppressing insurgency, he got this absolute power in Chechnya and very significant funding from the Kremlin. As long as he says loud and clear time and time again that Chechnya is a part of the Russian Federation and Chechnya is not seceding and Chechnya is not going anywhere, he can do whatever he wants. And the reason Chechnya is important to Russia is that the Kremlin cannot tolerate the very concept of secession. They are attempting to expand their influence, not lose territories. Kind of switching gears a little bit here, Tanya. Tell us, how do queer Chechens, how do they flee persecution in Chechnya? Walk us through that process. They are at risk of uh, horrid abuse. They are at risk of honor killings. Young people... If they get outed, if they get found out, then the family is very much likely to marry them off against their will. When people flee, they often seek assistance of LGBT rights groups, which has helped many survivors of the anti-gay purges in Chechnya to find a safe haven. And they have this evacuation and relocation program. If someone 
needs to flee, someone contacts the organization, contacts the hotline, explains the situation, tells the story, and says, I'm, I'm in need of evacuation. Could you help me? And if they're in a position to help, oftentimes they physically pick that person up. They come up with an evacuation plan. They take the individual to one safe house and another safe house. And then with time, hopefully, the individual can travel outside of Russia to real safety. Because while those people are still in Russia and the law enforcement is looking for them and their family is looking for them, there is still at great risk. Safer than in Chechnya itself, but still at great risk. Look, let me tell you a story that I've been working on for the past few days. It is indeed a devastating story. It's about a young woman name is Halimat. She is just 22 years of age and she identifies herself as bisexual. She is married. She never wanted that, but her family wanted that. And she was subjected to beatings, verbal abuse, physical abuse, to domestic violence by her husband, by her parents. She did not enjoy a happy life. At some point, she just couldn't take it anymore. She wanted to flee, especially as her family forced her to undergo conversion therapy and there was just no end to this. She wanted out. So in May this year, she contacted a Russian LGBT network, that LGBT rights organization I told you about, and she literally begged them to help her leave. They told her that evacuations are complex in divas, and due to all the security aspects involved, evacuations from Chechnya in particular, they take a while to organize, so she should sit tight and wait. They would help, but it would take time. Problem is... She just could not bear it anymore. And a friend of hers, who was very concerned for her, who was also afraid that she would get killed by her family, picked her up in Grozny, and they traveled. Grozny is the capital of Chechnya. And they traveled together to the neighboring region of Dagestan, to its capital city of Mahachkala. It's not a long drive from Grozny. It's just about like two and a half hours by car. And in Mahachkala, they sought assistance of a local shelter for battered women. And activists at the shelter allowed the both of them to stay there until a more viable solution is found. Because Dagestan is so close to Chechnya that they still remained at huge risk. I mean, better than in Chechnya, but nevertheless, very, very precarious. So while... Some evacuation plans were being made. Those two young women, they were counting days. But it so happened that they did not have too many days to count. Because literally five days later, a police officer knocked on the shelter's door. Not a Chechen police officer, but just a local Dagestani police officer. And he said, I received information that Ms. Halimat is staying at this particular apartment. She is registered as a missing person. Her family filed a missing person report with police authorities in Chechnya. And I just want to make sure that she's actually here and that she's actually okay. Prior to that, just several days earlier, on the advice of the activists, Halimat 
had recorded a video of herself saying loud and clear that she left Chechnya voluntarily, that she fled Chechnya because of the domestic abuse that she suffered, and that she requested law enforcement authorities not to look for her because she left of her own free will. That happened at two o'clock in the afternoon on the 10th of July. On that same day, at around eight o'clock in the evening, a group of police officers, Dagestani police officers, literally stormed the shelter. They broke the door. They dragged all the activists in charge of the shelter down the stairway. They forced those activists into police vehicles, drove them to the station, and kept them at the station overnight, They w- just so that they would not interfere. Once the activists were taken care of, another group of police officials from Chechnya entered that same apartment together with Halimat's father. And by that time, Halimat and her friend, they were hiding on the balcony, just huddled there. So one Chechen policeman and Halimat's father made it into the apartment, the both young women, they threatened to jump. They were that desperate. The father left and the police officers left. And then a few minutes later, a stranger walked in. He told them he was a neighbor and he heard the screams and he was concerned and he wanted to help. And he asked them to go downstairs with him and get into his car, and he promised to take them to a safe place. And the two young women, they were so desperate, they chose to trust him because they didn't know what else to do. They got into his car, he drove them straight to a police station in Mahachkala and handed them over to local police officers. He was a plainclothes police officer himself. So on in the morning, the police officers told Halimat and her friend that they were free to go wherever they wanted to go. But Chechen police officers were already waiting for them right outside of the station. And as soon as they left the station, Chechen police officers grabbed Halimat, threw her into a car, and drove her to Grozny, the capital of Chechnya, And Dagestani police officers were actually holding Halimat's friend down so that she would not interfere. That was the morning of June 11, just a few days ago, right? And this week, the main Chechen broadcaster ran a 35-minute story on Halimat together with her family members, saying how she's doing absolutely fine, how all that she wants to happen is to stay with her family and be with her family forever and ever, and how she really does not remember leaving and traveling to Dagestan, how she was probably dragged or something, how some awful people manipulated her. And then, of course, as part of the same program, Chechen officials are accusing those activists who tried to help of effectively kidnapping Halimat. This is all happening as we speak. 
And obviously that is, she's given a script. Of course, the tradition of uh, recanting allegations of abuse is quite long-standing in Chechnya under Ramzan Kadyrov. This is what people are routinely forced to do. If you suffer human rights abuses and you dare complain instead of keeping your mouth shut, then the authorities actually force you to recant on camera and to tell everyone who's listening, this never happened. I'm fine. My rights were never violated. Nothing bad happened to me. The authorities are treating me well. I'm totally fine. As we talk about these refugees that flee and who get caught in the process, what is it like for the activists when they lose someone to the process, when they decide to go back home, when they get caught, or when they die? What is that like for the activists who are running the network? These people who are so invested in the freedom of these individuals that they're helping, what is it like to basically fail for them? It is devastating, and at the same time, it is inevitable. When your work involves evacuations of very vulnerable people from a place like Chechnya, you know for a fact that you're going to lose someone. You know for a fact that someone will get caught, that someone will be brought back, that some people may even die. It goes with the job. It's very hard on the activists, but they still persevere because someone should be there to help. And so even though it's an inevitable part of the job, it is still heartbreaking and devastating. It is truly heartbreaking, but it's important that people at least have some place to call, some place to ask for help. It's very hard work. I mean, if you think about the LGBT survivors from Chechnya in particular, you cannot keep them in Russia. It's not a long-term solution. They have to leave the country. Because as one of the survivors I interviewed a few years ago told me, their hands are long and they're going to get me. You actually go to different governments and you try to convince them to take those people in. And finding those countries who are willing to open their arms to survivors from Chechnya is a bit of a tall order. And as you may know, not a single Chechen survivor was actually offered asylum in the United States. So now we move into when these survivors are actually granted their visas, which is, like you mentioned, a very, very difficult thing to obtain. The ultimate goal is to get these survivors out of Russia and into European countries, into Canada. What is it like when they actually leave and and re-enter into these brand new societies? I'm thinking about the mental state of these refugees. They have experienced torture. They are likely experiencing nightmares and PTSD 
what is life like when they re-enter into these societies? I'm guessing a lot of times they don't enter those those communities even speaking the language. And so I think oftentimes we think, finally, I'm free. When in reality, it's a completely new set of challenges, I imagine. Those people, with very few exceptions, they do not speak the language and they are completely lost in the new society, despite all the help that they're getting from local rights groups. They're not alone, right? They have uh, quite a bit of support, but they're still lost. It's a new situation. They were forced to leave behind so much that was dear to them. They are in a situation when in the interest of their own safety, they cannot contact their parents. They cannot contact their siblings. They cannot contact their friends. And some of them do because they just can't bear it. They're too lonely. And when they do, they expose themselves and others and they create very significant security risks. And then, of course, there is the issue of psychological trauma. Most of the survivors got some uh, uh, mental health assistance uh, while still in Russia but they also need help when they are on foreign soil because that's a lasting trauma. Some of them are just better than others. People are very different. Some are more social. For some, it's easier to overcome the trauma, but the kind of pain, the kind of humiliation that those people suffered, it just cannot go away. It reshapes their lives. They were tortured for days. They were humiliated for days. They were on the brink of death. Some were actually forced to beat others as the law enforcement officers were watching. They feel shame over having been exposed. They feel shame over having, quote, unquote, shamed their families. They feel shame over exposing other people, over providing names and contact details of other queer people of effectively putting those people in the same situation. And that shame and that pain, they're very difficult to overcome. And that is compounded with the grief of essentially losing everything you know about your life. Because in exchange for freedom, they are agreeing to never speak with their family ever again. And in some cases, never even speak their mother tongue ever again. Uh, yes, indeed, it's close to that. Those who travel to Europe, uh, there are sizable Chechen communities in many European countries, right? But the most dangerous thing that they can do is to actually hang out with other Chechens because the diaspora is pretty tight-knit and the diaspora is also infiltrated by Kadyrov's agents. And if they meet other Chechens, if they speak to other Chechens, then the likelihood of them being exposed is really quite high. Immigration is never a cakewalk. That type of immigration is dire and painful. And people are very lonely. Also, like I said earlier, out of all those victims, of anti-gay purges in Chechnya, practically no one dared seek 
justice because of fear of retaliation against their families. However, one of the survivors, who was not Chechen, he's an ethnic Russian, and he was actually in Chechnya on the job. He's gay, and he got caught up in the purge. After a few months of thinking, he decided that, that he needed justice for his own closure, but also to make sure that no such thing ever happens to anyone else. And he made a very courageous step, and he filed an official complaint with the Russian authorities, saying, I was detained by Chechen police for one single reason, because I'm gay. And that's the reason they kept me in uh, an unlawful detention facility in a secret prison. That's the reason they tortured me. And I saw other people being tortured, and that's what it was like in the same cell with me, and so on and so forth. So he told the entire story to Russian authorities, and he asked for two things, for his case to be effectively investigated and for the perpetrators to be brought to justice, and for governmental protection. His repeated requests for government protections were not satisfied. His complaint was not investigated properly. No criminal case was launched, and he found himself in a situation when he had no other choice but to leave the country for security reasons. He is in a safe country, but he can't tell anyone what the country is. And every day, every minute of his life, he is at tremendous risk. In your experience in reporting, there seems to be so much danger in this kind of journalism. And you yourself have even received threats, life-threatening threats. What keeps you going? What keeps you continuing to report on these kinds of stories that are just so important and so overlooked and still very under-discussed? What is keeping you going despite the danger of this kind of journalism? I've been reporting from some very miserable places. I've been reporting from Chechnya, from eastern Ukraine. And it's gruesome work. And you get to interview people who survived horrible abuses. What keeps you going is wanting to tell their stories because they need you to tell their stories. And in many cases... When you're interviewing people, you're telling them loud and clear, look, I can't help you. I cannot take your case to court and I cannot do much for you or your family. But what they want is for their voices to be heard and for their stories to be told. And someone needs to do that. Even in those cases where people choose not to pursue justice for security reasons, when they tell you not to mention their real name, to make special efforts to conceal their identity, they still want this story to be out there. It at least gives them a semblance of justice. Despite serious professional risks, it's completely worth doing. I wonder if you can tell us, Tanya, what is the end of this story? Where are we right now? And has this story come to an end? Or is it still ongoing? This is a story that is still ongoing. Some people flood and they're safe, but they never got justice. 
other people are trying to flee. They need a safe haven. Yet other people like Halimat tried and failed. And then, of course, there are all those other people who live in Chechnya, who have their secret lives and who can never come out, who can never speak up, who are fully confined to that closet. So, Tanya, in all of your work in this area, all of the people that you have interviewed, all of the stories that you understand about leaving home, leaving everything for the thought of freedom, I wonder what does the word bravery mean to you? These people who fled, they did not flee for the sake of freedom. They fled because they feared for their lives. Their agenda was no positive agenda, and that's very important to understand. But brave they are, because despite the fear, despite all the risks involved, they still told their stories, just so that their voices are heard. And that requires tremendous bravery. Even if you ask for your identity to be concealed, but coming from those circumstances, fleeing in such a terrible situation and still finding it in yourself to tell your story is an amazing act of courage. Well, thank you, Tanya, for the work that you're doing in the field and for sharing with us exactly what's going on over there. And thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. I'm Jorgen Salvis, and you've been listening to Unchaming. For more information about anyone featured on the show, follow us on Instagram and TikTok at Unchaming or visit unshamingpodcast.com. If you loved this episode, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We love hearing from you. So if you have questions or want to tell us what you're unshaming, DM us on Instagram or email us at unshamingpodcast at gmail.com. Special thanks to Mirzi for generously providing her original music. You can find her wherever you stream. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.